Well, welcome to everybody. <clears throat> How many of my K through 12 people have already started school? How many? Just about everybody. How's the first week gone? Good, bad, thumbs up, Roman thumbs down. I feel your pain, I'm in school too. So you can know that it never ends, I'm 36. <laughs> and I got one semester left. I'm repping the college wear, my Wesley Seminary shirt, my trucker hat. I'll get rid of that, though. No. All right. So, almost done with school. I feel your pain. I'm doing homework every night. My wife can attest to that back on the camera. But you'll get through it, and it'll be better for it. All right, so I just want to introduce myself. My name is Ryan Hansen. I, uh, <clears throat> I had the honor of serving as volunteer staff here at TLC, uh, helping out with the small groups. And I am so happy to be here with you guys today. But I want to start out by telling you a story. Is that all right? Torrin's excited. He's going to fall asleep with the soundboard. All right? So if there's any weird sounds, Torrin's head hitting the soundboard. All right. So for this, I just want you to close your eyes for a second. I want you to picture an 11-year-old boy. This 11-year-old boy just graduated from fifth grade. Could you graduate from those things? He spent the whole summer with his best friend. They went back and forth to each other's houses. They climbed trees. They shot their siblings' Barbies off of tree trunks, right? They did everything that 11-year-old boys should do. They got dirty, they got hurt, screw up, scrapes, bruises, the whole deal. And now they're entering middle school. They're pretty excited because now all these elementary schools are coming together. There's new people, there's all kinds of things that they can do together. <clears throat> but they're a little nervous too. See, they're not in each other's classes. They do share lunch. So the first day they made a plan, they said, all right, the first day we're going to sit together at lunch, we're going to go over things, at least we've got one person that we can kind of have as an anchor to get us through this first day. The morning goes well, this 11-year-old boy, he meets some people, his teachers are nice, he doesn't get too much homework, most of all, he doesn't get lost in the bigger building, that was his main concern. But lunch comes around, he sits at this table, and his friend's not there. He pulls out his lunch, he says, all right, fine, I'll just eat my lunch anyway. So he starts eating his lunch, and halfway through the lunch, his best friend shows up, he's like, oh, maybe the lunch line was just too long, that's fine. His best friend walks up with a piece of paper, he puts it on the table in front of him, and just walks away, and this 11-year-old boy thinks, that's really weird, who does that? But thinking, well, maybe I'm just thinking something weird, he, he picks up the paper and he reads it, and on this piece of paper it says, I don't want to be your friend anymore, I'm not going to tell you why, and I don't want you to ever talk to me again. This 11-year-old boy is a little confused. He's like, well, who would do that first off? But <clears throat> being that it's the first day of school and he's trying to meet new people, he can't really show emotion because that's not cool, right? So he soldiers on, but something inside of him changed that day. See, the rejection that that 11-year-old boy felt stuck with him. But he moved on and he made some friends and sixth grade went pretty well. And at some point in fifth or sixth grade, this 11-year-old boy's brother wanted to play hockey. He saw the Mighty Ducks, the first one with the flying V. Really exciting, you know. Ducks fly together, the whole deal. And he said, that's for me. And this brother says, I'm going to do this. And the parents said, there's three kids and we can only shuttle two of you around, so you got to do the same things. So this 11-year-old boy got roped into playing hockey. But he got pretty good and he made the JV team and he said, well, this is going to be pretty exciting, so I'll play hockey, I'll make friends. And this 11-year-old boy, now 12, decided that he was going to take a risk, right? He's going to Invite somebody to go to a movie. So he called up his friends on the hockey team. He said, hey, we should go to a movie. This came out. Let's get half the team together. Let's go see the movie. And before the term gaslighting ever became real, this friend thought that it'd be funny to pretend this 11-year-old boy didn't exist. So he says, I don't remember who you are. 
and thrown off and kind of confused. This boy just hung up the phone. He's like, well, that's weird. So the next day he shows up at school. He goes face to face with this kid. He's like, what was the deal on the phone yesterday? And he says, who are you again? And for two months, this kid didn't talk to him. Just pretend he didn't exist. Now, you can probably tell that kid was me. And what changed was the fact that I lost belief in the person that God created me to be. You see, I got the belief that I wasn't worth liking in middle school. And that belief made me change a few things about the way that I lived. See, from that point on, instead of trying to become the person that God created me, I tried to become the person I thought other people would like. So little choices here, little choices there, nothing major. It's not like I, you know, ran off and joined the circus. But little things happen. I would lie when I thought the truth was something that people wouldn't like. In a group of people, if somebody did something weird, I'd be the first one to jump in and attack them, right? Say something mean because most of the people would laugh. That's the way you get attention, right? And the problem was that over time, I became the person that caused the pain that I was trying to run from. And through middle and high school, I had lots of acquaintances, but I never would risk enough to have a true friend. And all of those choices added up to a decade of regrets that by college I didn't know what to do with. And I think that this is the way that the devil works. And I don't know how he works in your life, but I want you to think back to the regrets that you have and the choices that you made. At one point, the devil puts a thought in your brain and that thought kind of just rattles around. And eventually that thought leads you to doubt the plan that God has for your life. And it leads you to act in ways that aren't the best way for your life. And eventually those choices catch up to you and the regrets start building and you don't know what to do about it. See, today I want to talk about sin. That's a topic that's not fun to talk about. It's a topic that rarely does get talked about. But I, I think this is appropriate, especially on a family weekend, that we talk about sin. And lucky for us, in the Bible, there's, there's a character that knows all too well about sin. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he describes himself as the worst of all sinners, which gives us hope because that means we're not the worst, Right? In my life, I've come in dead last in a triathlon, but I'm not the worst of all sinners, so that's good. Right? It is embarrassing when the motorcycle cop wheels you up to the finish line. He's trudling by, I'm like, he's just talking to me like, you can do it. I'm like, oh, crap. Anyway, it's beside the point. In Acts 7 and 8, we were introduced to a person named Saul. Now, Saul is a good Jew. He had the best of pedigrees. He went to the best schools, learned of the best teachers. He did everything right. He followed the Old Testament to a T, and he had all the accolades that everybody would think of him as be like, that is the kind of person I want to be. We see in Acts 7 8, we're also introduced to the character of Stephen. Now, Stephen was a Christian. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed that Jesus was the way that we get salvation and get to go to heaven when we die. And Stephen was put in charge of feeding the widows by the apostles of all the horrible things to be put in charge of, feeding the widows. And the Jews didn't like this, not necessarily the feeding the widows part, but the Jews didn't like the fact that Stephen believed that Jesus was the son of God. You see, they, they thought that was blasphemy, and for that they deserved death. So the Jews decided that Stephen needed to die, so they stoned him. And it's there that we meet Saul. And Saul was the guy in the background holding the coats of the killers. 
And we might think, well, you hold the coats, at least he's not the one throwing the rocks. But back then, it was like a manager having his direct reports do something. See, holding the coats back then was taking responsibility and giving permission to do something. And this act by Saul started a long period of terror that he would put on the Christians. He'd go city to city, he'd arrest them, he'd throw them in jail, he'd have them killed for blasphemy, he'd do all kinds of things to try to crush Christianity because he thought that it was a blight to the Jewish faith and something that needed to be fixed. Now we also learn that he had a moment on the road to Damascus where all of his sins caught up to him in the form of Jesus coming to him in a vision. See a bright light shone and Jesus was talking to him directly. Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus gave him the opportunity to repent, gave him the opportunity to change his life, gave him the opportunity to become the person, and he called him to a better future. Saul, I want you to go out and preach to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people. I want you to build the church, plant churches all over the place so that people can learn about me and worship me and live the best kind of life that I wanted them to live in the first place. And Saul repented, and Saul took it up, and he wrote half of the New Testament that we can read about. And Jesus even changed his name to Paul, which is probably how most of us remind, or like think of him as Paul. As a point that says you're a different person now. You even have a different name. You see, today I want to break this talk up into three chunks. First off, I want to define what sin is so that we're all working off the same definition because I think definitions are important. Then I want to talk about the why behind the sins because I think we can't fix something if we don't understand why it happens. And finally, I want to conclude with how do we break the patterns of sin in our lives? Because I think if we're honest, all of us sin to a degree. All of us have problems. All of us have things that we're running from. All of us have regrets that we need to deal with. So if you have a Bible, we're going to stick to the book of Romans. Romans is by many considered Paul's kind of seminal work. Some people even call it Paul's gospel. It's his attempt to share the good news of Jesus to the town of Rome, or the city of Rome, or the empire of Rome. And in it, he talks about how we deal with regrets, what we do with sin, and how we can move on and live the life that God called us to live. So the first thing I want to do, and we're going to jump around, there's kind of two main sections that I'll actually like pull the Bible out and read. There's a few verses sprinkled through. But the first thing I want to do is define what sin is. You see, in Romans 3.23, Paul writes that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 3.10, Paul writes that no one is acceptable to God. You see, God is perfect. God created everything perfect. And it's through the fall and through sin of Adam and Eve and the sins of us that we're not worthy of being in the presence of God. We're not acceptable because God is so perfect he can't have imperfect things next to him. So just Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, we have to leave God's presence when we sin. So if you look in the New Testament and you look at the actual Greek word for sin, it is this word here. I think it's going to be on the screen here. Hamartano, which I'm probably butchering, but basically means to miss the mark. So you say, okay, to miss the mark. So if I take a page of my notes, this is how my notes look, throw in trash. And I were to crinkle up my notes, I know, you should see the rest of them. <laughs> if I were to crinkle up my notes and I was to throw them in the trash, but I missed because I play hockey, not basketball, <laughs> right? You could technically say I sinned in church in front of all of you. 
But would anybody say that missing a basket would disqualify me from the presence of God? I would hope not. You see, I think to define sin is a little bit deeper than to miss the mark, right? You hear lots of sermons say, it's like archery, it's like, you know, whatever. I think we gotta be a little bit more specific. So if we throw the definition that I wrote up there, I think sin is to miss the mark that God has set for your life. You see, we each have to dig into, we need to read the Bible, we need to figure out the calling that God put in our lives and the mark that God set, the purpose that God has given us. And if we stray from that purpose, then that to us is sin. You see, it's not just missing a basket or it's not just doing one thing here or there. It's whatever we do that God does not appreciate is sin. And we've got to figure out what it is that God appreciates by reading the Bible, by being around other Christians who can speak into our lives, by doing all kinds of other things to figure out exactly what that is. But I think just knowing the definition doesn't really get us there. Because I think we need to know why we sin. Because even if we know, well, we shouldn't, there's 613 rules in the Old Testament, right? Ten commandments. Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. James, Jesus' brother, said, I can do you one better. If you think it's wrong, then it's probably wrong, right? We'll just make it one rule. That if, if we don't know why we sin, we can't stop it. So that's why I brought up my backpack, not only because it's family weekend, Students, this is a vintage 1995 Nike backpack. How many people is my backpack older than? That's right. That's right. I had to barter with my mom because it was Nike and name brand. I was going to get LA gear, but I said, not this year, mom. <laughs> Nike. I want something cool. So kids will love me. So I got a black backpack with purple outsides, and I was like, ooh, purple, what, whatever. But God gave me a vision of Jenga to help me understand the why behind sin. You see, back in 2002, I'd freshly graduated from college. I was going to a really large church, and the pastor got on stage, and he says, look, we have two services. We don't have enough people for the kids. Unless you want me to send your kids away, which means they're going to be in here with you, you need to start volunteering. And I didn't have any kids, but I didn't have any life either. So I said, I might as well volunteer. So I said, I'm going to volunteer with first graders because they're young and impressionable, and they're not going to learn anything anyway. So I can't really mess that up. So right out of college, I said, I am going to be that leader. And I didn't really care for the rules too much. I said, I am going to be that leader that kids just love to come to. They're going to learn about Jesus, which is the primary goal. But the secondary goal, they're going to come to church to be part of my group. So we were in a room with like 50 first graders. And they had little tables set up around the perimeter. And like, you know, one of the leaders set up coloring. One of them set up, you know, puzzles. I don't know. It wasn't even memorable. But I set up Jenga, and all these first graders that didn't know what Jenga was, they came to my table, and first graders are short, so we have a short table, you know? And we set up Jenga, and we said, all right, this is what it is. And just like in Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, it was very good, God also created Jenga. And it is very good. And if you look at the tower, it's perfect, right? Three block widths equal a block length. Just mathematically, that's nice. It's all like beautiful. And what God showed me was like this Jenga tower represents our souls. Like as the game of Jenga is played, it shows us why we sin. It shows what we do to ourselves as we sin. You see, in first grade, I would teach these kids how to play Jenga because none of their parents love them enough to teach them themselves. So, 
The first time they go to take a block out, they'd, they'd get around the table and they'd say, everybody get away, get away, don't touch the table, you're gonna bump it and then it'll fall because of you, not me. And they'd be really nervous, right? And they'd, they'd, they'd test every block, right? They'd go up the, up the thing and they'd, they'd test every, every block and they'd find a few that, that they thought maybe they had the potential of moving, you know, of getting rid of, you know, maybe. And then, and then they'd find one, you know? They, oh, that's a good one. I think maybe I can get away with this. I think, I think maybe I can take that block out without knocking the whole thing over. And you could just see them take a deep breath. Just like you see in the movies, the snipers who don't breathe when they pull the trigger. These little kids were like snipers or Jenga. And they would, they would breathe deep. And sometimes they'd even put their fingers, you know, like this on top and bottom to keep the rows. And they'd slowly pull it out. And they'd step away and they'd like, don't fall. And then they'd come back to it when they thought it was safe. they put it on top. And they'd be like, oh, oh, I did it. Is that not exactly what we do with sin? That we get tempted to do something, and we know it's wrong. We know there could be ramifications. We know that the whole tower could fall over, right? The devil puts that temptation in our brain, it just rattles around, it rattles around until finally we're like, I can't, I can't think of anything else but this, and I'm just going to do it. And we're very careful, and we kind of tiptoe up to the sin. We try to find where that line is. And eventually... We pull the block out, and we know what's wrong, but we do it anyway, and nothing happens. Power didn't fall over. Lots of times we sin, and we're like, it was actually a lot of fun. Because let's be honest, we wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun, right? It's like, eat your broccoli. No. Eating broccoli was a sin. Nobody would ever sin, right? Unless you put cheese on it. That's fine. <laughs> but a lot of times when we sin, right, nothing happens. At least not initially. But look at what happens to our soul. It's not, it's not quite the same. You see, sin leaves scars on our soul. And over time, they add up. And just like with those first graders in Jenga, taking out the first block wasn't enough, right? But taking out the second block was easier. See, the second block, they were a little bit careful, but they would just take it out and they put it on top. And the second block was easier. I think that's the way the sin works too. It just gets easier. And it's not as fun the second time. And to keep the kids excited about Jenga because I selfishly needed my table to be the best table, I had to keep changing the rules on them to keep the excitement going. Right? So then it was no test. They just have to take a block out. They just have to take a block out. And they just have to take it out and they have to put it on the top without testing. Right? And there was no test, and now the excitement's there because now I don't know if there's friction. I don't know if I can, you know, I don't know where that line is. I could pick the one that has all the weight on it, and the whole thing falls over, right? Then I had changed the rules again, and I had to say, well, now we're going to no test. We're just going to flick it, right? You can't even, like, use your fingers, right? So we just need to flick it. We need to flick it. Just get rid of it. Flick it out. And it stays exciting because it escalates. And that's the same with sin. Sin escalates. And the choices that we make, those small choices of, I'm just going to do this once because I can't stand the pressure in my mind of not doing it, leads to a habit. Because all of our choices leads to habits. And just like with Jenga, and just like the escalation happens, those habits have consequences. You see, look at the tower now. It's not nearly the same as it was before. 
That one little scar that we could kind of overlook becomes big divots. And eventually the weight of our sin starts to carry us down. And our choices create habits, but those habits shape our identity. And eventually, our identity becomes defined by those habits. And if we have bad habits, our identity becomes defined by those bad habits. The one thing that I love about Celebrate Recovery and not AA is that AA starts with, hi, my name is whatever, and I am an alcoholic. Their identity is shaped by their sin. Celebrate Recovery starts with, hi, my name is whatever, I am a Christian who struggles with alcohol. But you see with the tower, what do you do when your identity gets shaped in the wrong way? And does it stop just there? This is my soul, right? The, I got scars, I got divots, I got one block hanging out weird. And if that was just the end of it, it probably wouldn't be the end of the world. But in small group, my small group, we have game nights periodically. And I brought Jenga to a game night, and they all looked at me like I was ridiculous. They're like, what are you doing? Jenga's stupid. And I was like, Jenga's awesome. Leave it alone. Because they all like those board games, you need to read the rules. Jenga, you don't need to read the rules. Don't knock it over, right? Like, that's my kind of game. That's my level of intelligence. But they bring these games with like a thousand cards and dice and boards and things and spinners and rules that are longer than books that I try not to read because they're still too long. But eventually my excitement caught on and eventually we were goofing around and changed the rules with my small group and, and look at this video of what, what ensued. That's me and Jacob Haffler. Two, one. See, the problem with sin is it not only escalates, but it spreads. My sins don't just affect me. My love of Jenga didn't just affect me. You see how Jacob Haffler jumped up just as quick as I did? And apparently he's a little quicker than I am too. But the Jenga tower held strong. Right? Our sins don't just affect us. Our sins affect all those people around us. We can try to be sneaky about it. We can try to hide things. We can try to cover things up, but it just doesn't work. So if our sins not only hurt us, but they hurt everybody else, how do we stop sinning? See, by and large, I have a lot of confidence in myself. I think, like, I can figure this out. Anybody else like that? Like, I will just figure this out. Instructions, that's why I play Jenga and other things, because I don't want to read. I don't want to learn from other people. I just want to figure it out, right? You buy an Ikea thing, you're like, I got the picture on the box. All those words don't matter. Why do you give me so many different length screws, right? Like, just... I don't know. I want to figure it out myself. And if habits, or if choices lead to habits, and habits lead to identity, and an identity, and I got the Bible that tells me what kind of choices I should be making, I should be able to just fix this, right? I'll just make better choices. I'll just grow better habits. And then I'll fix the identity that I messed up. Because it's simple. It's like an equation. I have an engineering degree. Equations just solve everything, right? But that's just not the way that it works. And if you flip with me to Romans 7.15, it's very encouraging that one of the best Christians in the Bible, obviously not, you know, above Jesus, but one of the best Christians, Paul, came to the same conclusion. See, in Romans 7.15, this is what Paul says. 
We're in verse 7, 15 through 19. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate to do, that I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is the sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, that I keep doing. See, Paul, one of the greatest Christians, somebody who, like Jesus, personally spoke to, personally gave his mission, We're like, God, what do you want me to do? Jesus was like, Paul, go preach to Gentiles. Okay, thanks, right? Don't you wish that happened? Paul had all these things. He knew God was real. He spoke to him, right? He knew exactly what he was supposed to do. God told him. And yet, he still struggled. And he still couldn't solve his problems by himself. And for me, that gives me a lot of comfort. Because at the end of the day, Paul couldn't and I can't live a good enough life to earn my way to heaven, to earn my way into God's presence. You see, I need a savior that's perfect. I need somebody who lived a perfect life, who never had separation from God, who can stand between me and God and represent me to God, saying, no, he's good. I need a perfect savior because I can't do it myself. I can try, I can look at the Jenga thing and I can say, well, maybe I can push that block in, you know? But what do I do with that? Oh, I threw a block in the trash, that one's gone, right? What do we do? I, I can't fix the tower. And my efforts to fix it usually just make it worse. See, in Romans 5, 8, Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus is that perfect savior. Jesus is the person, God's son that came to earth, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, and who takes the consequences of our sins so that we can have a relationship with God. You see, with Jenga, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you accept Jesus into your life, it's kind of like God says, okay, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, and he'll go in your heart, and he'll come around you, and he'll guide you, and he'll teach you, and he'll shape you. But then when you accept Jesus as your Savior, it's kind of like, kind of like God just puts the box back on the Jenga tower. And now when God looks at us, when God looks at our souls, he doesn't see all the damage that we've done. He doesn't see those scars. All he sees is the brand new box. The Bible says that when we believe in Jesus, we are a new creation. You see, when God looks at us after we accept him as our savior, we see the, God sees the box. He sees only Jesus' perfection. He doesn't see the scars that we have done, the damage that we've done to ourselves. But if you notice, our soul's still in there, still damaged, right? And that's why we have, he sent the Holy Spirit as our helper. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us, he fills us, and he helps fix the damage that we've done that we couldn't fix ourselves. He empowers us to make those better choices that we couldn't make by ourselves. He empowers us to build better habits 
And slowly it is in our identity that is grounded in our belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior that we experience healing. But God doesn't waste our past. God doesn't create it. God doesn't tempt us. God doesn't force us to sin, but God's not going to waste it. God uses our mistakes and turns them into our ministry. God won't waste our experiences in life. He says, who better to help that person struggling from an addiction with whatever than you who have struggled and have come through? You know how to talk to that person in a way other people can't talk to them. You know how to help them in ways that other people can't help them. God uses people to accomplish his plans and God wants to use each and every one of you to accomplish his plans for somebody else. You see, in Romans 10, 13, <clears throat> Paul writes, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't need to be perfect before asking the Holy Spirit into your heart and accepting Jesus as your Savior. Because if you think you need to become perfect or you need to get some things figured out, you're never going to get there. It starts with the belief and the acceptance. And that's the start of a journey toward healing, not the end of it. So what do we do? If you guys have struggled with something, and not just the big things, right? I mean, adults, we think of like, oh, well, you know, addictions are, or sins are like drugs, alcohol, pornography. We think of like the big things, right? And kids, you're like, I'm not old enough to really like have a problem, but what about friendships? What are you willing to do to get friends? What are you willing to do to get good grades to make other people happy? What are you willing to do to get good at sports? What are you sacrificing to get a little bit better at sports so that other people like you more? And adults, what are we willing to do to get that promotion, to get the bigger job, to get a little bit more power, to get the car that we've always wanted or the house that we think we need? What kind of compromises are we making? See, I think we all suffer from this stuff. But what are we going to do? I think there's four things that we can do. And it depends on where you're at personally in your spiritual walk. The first thing, if you are just new to Christianity, you haven't really bought in, you're still searching, the first thing I would pray for you is that today is your day to accept Jesus as your Savior. Don't feel you need to fix your life first. Make the decision now. Give it to God. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are real. I believe that you're the Son of God. And I believe that it's only through your forgiveness and through the work of the Holy Spirit that I can become the person that you created me to be. You see, when I sit in the audience and people, pastors make different claims like, come up here and do whatever. Come up here and do whatever. Like, you know, I usually get that little like butterfly feeling sometimes. I think that butterfly feeling is God personally speaking to you and inviting you into his family. If today's your day, in a little bit, I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray along with me and invite God into your heart. Now, if you are a Christian, but you still struggle with things, because we've said being a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect, and you're still struggling, I would implore you to find an accountability partner. Find somebody, not your spouse, that you can call at any time who will answer the phone. Talk with them in person or over the phone weekly. 
just to do a checkup. I have an accountability partner I call every Wednesday at nine o'clock. And we just ask some standard questions. How you doing? What have you struggled with this week? How did that go? If you failed, why didn't you call me, right? Because you see in James 5, James writes, if you confess your sins to God, you receive forgiveness. But it's by confessing your sins to others that you receive healing. See, we need people in our lives to hold us accountable. We need people to point out our blind spots. We need people in our lives to call us on the carpet and have just brutal honesty with us. Who can say, hey, you shouldn't be alone with a computer. Hey, you shouldn't put yourself in that situation. If you can invite out to dinner, it better not be to a bar or you better decline or ask them to go somewhere else. Because we all have triggers and we need other people to point out where those triggers are because a lot of times we just become blind to them. Find an accountability partner that you can talk to weekly. The third thing I'm going to recommend is that if you haven't already, join a small group. See, at TLC, we believe small groups center around three things. Caring for each other, just general caring for each other. Celebrating with each other when things go well. And then challenging each other to become the person that God created you to be. We're going to relaunch small groups on October 7. But before then, we need some leaders to help sign up because we need some groups to put these people in they're going to sign up. So if you have it on your heart to lead a small group, we'll train you, we'll help you get everything you need. It is not a difficult thing to do. It is something that anybody can do. But we need people who are willing to open their house or our small group rotates houses because, you know, less travel time for everybody. But if you want to lead a small group, you cannot read my email because it's blue and that looks horrible. <laughs> that was a technology fail. Email ryan at localgr.org or come see me afterwards. But join a small group, either as a leader, which we need, or as a member on October 7 when you sign up. And the fourth thing, don't waste your past. Serve other people who are struggling from the things that you've overcome. You have experience that other people need and God wants to use you to help them. There are nonprofit organizations all throughout Grand Rapids that need volunteers. Everybody's too busy, right? That means there's nobody willing to volunteer. Find an organization, get plugged in, serve other people. If you say, I don't know where to even start, Come talk to me. Come talk to Torin. We can help get you plugged into a great organization that fits your background where you can use the past that you have to help other people. No matter where you are at your spiritual journey, I just want you to know that God loves you. And that God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to stay the way you are. If you're brand new to the whole thought of Christianity, and you're doing all kinds of stuff that you're starting to believe is, is probably not right, but you're so early on your journey, like, I don't even know where to start. The first thing to do is to accept Jesus as your Savior and let the Holy Spirit start working in your life from there. But even if you're farther along, God still has plans for you. God still wants to grow you. God still wants to use you. God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to stay the way you are. He wants the very best for your life. He wants you to live the life that he created you to live. 
So this time, I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads. And if today is your day to accept Jesus as your Savior, please pray silently with me in your head. If you're feeling those butterflies in the stomach, remember that is God inviting you into his family. And I pray that you respond. If you've already accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you've strayed in significant ways, feel free to pray along as well as a recommitment to that decision you made a long time ago. Please pray with me. God, we are naturally prone to sin. We seek what's wrong in the pursuit of short-term excitement. I confess that I've sinned against you and others. I know what I've done is wrong, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is your son. That you sent him to earth to live a perfect life and to die on the cross so that I can be forgiven of my sins and so that I can have a relationship with you and spend eternity with you in heaven. I ask you, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Speak to me. Guide me. Heal me. Direct me toward the life that you have created me to live. Help me to use the mistakes of my past to minister to the hurting in the world. I love you, and I cannot wait to start this amazing journey with you. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want everybody to keep their eyes closed, but I want to follow up with anybody that prayed that prayer because we should not start a journey like this alone. If you prayed that prayer, please raise your hand. I'd ask for you to come up afterwards so I can get your name and your email, your phone number so we can follow up. Thank you. Thank you. Now for everybody, go this week empowered by the knowledge that God loves you and wants the very best for you. You do not have to continue in the patterns of sin that have defined your life to this point. Find a small group. Find an accountability partner. Confess to a trusted friend and experience the healing that only the Holy Spirit can offer. And remember, help other people can be as simple as signing up and showing up in a few minutes for the evangelism training. Go in peace.